RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. and welcome to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. Oh my gosh. So today we are joined by the creators of COVID Up to Date. We have three of the brilliant creators behind COVID Up to Date, Neha, Rohan, and Ali. They are medical school students at John Hopkins, and they have all been putting in time and effort on top of their busy schedules to give us clear and concise and updated, regularly updated COVID information. Um, I am obsessed with their handle. It's at COVID UpToDate on Instagram. They are so nice and kind and smart, and I just think you'll have a great time listening to this because I had such a great time listening to them talk about their passion project and also um, what they're doing with their regular life, which is being medical students, which as everybody can assume is not easy. So um, without further ado, here we go. All right, guys. Hi, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Yes, great to be here. Yay, I've really been looking forward to this. So I'm Abby, this is Dan. I'm a nurse working in Manhattan. Dan, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm one of the internal medicine residents at the same hospital that Abby works at in New York City. Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you guys. Can you you guys want to go around and introduce yourself? Sure, I can start. I'm Neha. I'm... With Rohan and Ali, one of the creators of COVID Up Today, I'm in between my third and fourth year of medical school at Hopkins. I'm actually doing an MPH right now. So, yeah. I'm Ali. I am also one of the creators of COVID Up to Date and in between my third and fourth year of medical school. Right now, I'm doing research in a basic science translational lab focused on head and neck surgery and that plan to apply into head and neck surgery for residency. And hi, uh, my name is Rohan. I've also been working with Neha and Ali on the COVID Up to Date page for about nine months now. I'm a second year MD PhD student, but I'm still on sort of the medical school side of stuff. Uh, we'll be starting my PhD this time next year. Great. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, first of all, I love your website. I love all the infographs. Like, I'm obsessed with everything you guys put out. So, I want to start off just exploring that a little bit. Like, how did you guys get started? Was this your idea? How did that happen? Yeah, I can talk about that a bit and then I'll let my other creators jump in too. So, uh, we started this in March when the pandemic was 
first kind of starting to happen. And we were actually on spring break at this time from medical school and waiting to hear back when we would be able to get into our rotations again. So for me personally, I was supposed to start my neurology psychiatry rotation and that just got pushed off. So during this time, we were kind of trying to think of what we could do to help out because we were all in different places. We were all remote at that time and kind of had nothing to do at that time because as medical students, like our whole, you know, life is trying to go on rotations and study, trying to become a doctor basically. And I think we felt very frustrated that like, you know, importantly, we weren't allowed to be in the hospitals because it was essential, you know, staff only, but you know, that our kind of education and being able to help patients at that time, we weren't really able to do that. So we decided to see what we could do. I remember I had FaceTime call with Allie and one of our other co-creators, Lucy, about what we could do. And we had this idea to create this social media account with graphics summarizing the news because we all felt very overwhelmed at that time by the news that was coming out every day regarding the pandemic. And as having uh, at least a few years of medical background, we were able to understand most of it. But I think, you know, for everybody else, if you don't have as much of a scientific or medical background, it can be really confusing to kind of digest everything that's happening in the news. So our goal was really to try to condense that as a way to for people not to feel so overwhelmed, but also to stay updated. So we started with news posts and then we also started creating graphics just about general information about COVID-19 and what you're going to do to help, what's testing, what are the different treatments, like just any really up-to-date news that we could give to people. And we decided to do in graphic form. Maybe, Ali, you can talk about that more because you're in charge of graphics. Sure. Yeah. So in the beginning, we didn't know really what the appropriate venue would be to disseminate certain information, but we thought that having a platform centered around graphics to have a visual component would be really helpful for the general public because I know personally it really helps to digest a lot of scientific information with a visual and something that's just visually pleasing. And so we played around with the idea of, you know, Twitter versus Facebook versus Instagram and kind of decided to go with Instagram because it it makes it really easy to spread information in a visual form and also have other people be able to share it visually too. So I think that has really helped us to limit the amount of text that we need to present in order to synthesize findings and, you know, allow it to maintain a digestible amount of information. Okay. So how many, you mentioned somebody else, how many people run this account in total? Yeah, so it started with three people, really, and it kind of has blossomed into a whole team of of contributors from a graphic side of things, research side of things, and just editors. But I would say there are about five people now that run the account from kind of the back end and vet all of the posts from a you know strategic and editing standpoint. So we're in that we're in that core group. Yeah, they're about. I would say like 20 to 30 students in total who have helped us with these posts over the course of the last nine months. You work as well with physician attendings and any departments that can infectious disease and stuff like that? 
So we are more student-led, so we haven't had as much input from physicians or attendings, but we have, you know, had some of them mentor us, especially at the beginning about getting feedback on our post and, you know, where to take the direction of the account as well. But we are mainly student-led. That's great. Do you guys have a particular interest in infectious disease or immunology or maybe lung pathologies in particular? What kind of led you to want to do this in terms of your medical interests? Uh, I think for me as a second year student, it's kind of interesting because I know like just a tiny bit about medicine in general, but like COVID-19 is kind of special in that the entire world was learning about it at the same time as I was, unlike all the other diseases, which I'm learning from people that have already kind of mastered it. And so for me, it's like, Half of the time I've been in medicine, COVID-19 has been the like big issue. And it's been, for me, like I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do as a doctor, but it's been really interesting to kind of learn along with the rest of the world and the rest of the scientists and academics. And it's definitely influenced my interests, but I think it's also been a real privilege to like try and help disseminate you know, valid information to the general public, which is something that I never really thought I'd get the chance to do as a medical student. Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Are are you frustrated? You're talking about, you know, getting out real data to the public in real time. Are you frustrated by the misinformation? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it's been kind of, it was a focus initially us trying to combat certain myths that were spreading that we saw. We had a whole series of MythBuster posts in the beginning, and it seemed like that could go on endlessly just based on a lot of the different theories that are out there. And we realized that Instagram and a lot of other social media sites are echo chambers. And, you know, a lot of our followers are people who want to stay informed and want the evidence-based medicine research out there. But I think that what we're trying to do is, you know, break, break outside that echo chamber and try to have our posts shared to people that may disagree. And we've we've had our share of comments and, you know, DMs about certain certain conspiracies and just just posts in general that we've tried to answer to the best of our ability and really shed light on a lot of the topics that people don't know a lot about. So your strategy is you engage. When somebody emails you crazy stuff that their uncle told them, do you 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 try to educate them? I think if it's if it's phrased as like a question or if it's phrased as a just like this is what I've heard, we do definitely try to engage. I think we're kind of also learning with this platform that there's a fine line between trying to, you know, educate people or and also like trying not to give as much light to people who might have, you know, certain theories that might not be true, especially like in the comments section. If, you know, somebody puts a bunch of information that, you know, saying that our post is false or like this is a another theory. If there's like a lot of comments, like a stream of comments like that, we just, we don't engage with it because we also don't want it to, you know, be the most prominent thing on, on the post other than the the graphic itself. So I think our strategy so far has been to, if it's a very genuinely like a question or like a a comment wanting to confirm something, then we'll engage with it. Have you guys become the point people for COVID information within your medical schools? Do people come up to you, ask you all the time, oh, so what's what's the most up-to-date information on COVID? (laughs) 
<laughs> I would say, I mean, I'm not sure about within our med school. Definitely, yeah, within my close circle of medical students, I feel like most of most of us are actually working on the account. But for my family and non-medical friends, it's been interesting to be like that point person. And, you know, it, it's a great resource for additional posts because if I, my mom asked me a question about the vaccine, for example, then I'm motivated to make a post that addresses that question because I realized that probably many other people have that question as well. What's the, what's the most ridiculous question you've gotten? Like, <laughs> like oh, the vaccine's going to make me like grow hair in weird places or something. Like, <laughs> I think, I mean, the, the microchip Bill Gates theory recently it was one of the ones that i mean but that's kind of prominent that's one of my favorites yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that one is, is pretty ridiculous what else 5g was one of the like er- earlier ones i think that one has kind of phased out now to some oh, yeah. extent mm-hmm. yeah it's funny how it phased yeah. out right <laughs> i think i mean because now doesn't the iphone the new one have 5g and we all just like got it anyway so like it's just like oh no I really right care. they'd rather have the new <laughs> iphone than believe that it caused covid so <laughs> people's priorities <Yeah>. change <laughs> definitely okay there's a lot of conflicting stuff and if you guys don't know the answer to some of this that's okay you can just say so and we can move on but can any of you speak about like herd immunity and the idea of like Sweden and this whole idea with the vaccine and all of this stuff? Can can you guys shed some light on this? Yeah, sure. So we'll, we'll do the best we can. But um, I think, you know, I think the concept of herd immunity is one of those topics that, uh, you know, is tossed around in public health and medicine a lot. And, and it's been in the news this whole year. If you've never heard it before and you just hear basic ex- explanation of it, it might not capture the whole the whole story. So I think the idea, so first you just define herd immunity. It's having enough people in a population that are immune to an infectious disease like COVID-19, possibly in the future, so that it reduces the spread of that, that infectious agent. So I think the theory behind that if everybody just gets exposed to the virus and then we'll have herd immunity became really popular because it was a it was a way to, you know, continue to have like normal life during this pandemic world. Whereas like also, you know, being able to com- like combat the pandemic by still like living a normal life. And I think with Sweden, I do remember seeing like a comparison between Sweden and Norway. In Norway, there was very strict restrictions. In Sweden, they went with the more like open approach. And Sweden ended up having a lot more cases. And with more cases, there were a lot more deaths with that as well. So I think, you know, it's not really... To say like, oh, we'll just have herd immunity if everybody just gets exposed. There's also potentially a cost to that. And the timeline for getting herd immunity is something like we also don't know. And so I think just waiting for the vaccine and waiting for an effective vaccine, I think public health works pushing that as the way to get herd immunity in the first place. So hopefully, I mean, that will happen sometime soon with the vaccine, with vaccines coming out. But I, I hope that hopefully answered your question. Uh, what are ways you feel like we could have done something better at like handling the pandemic? And what are your thoughts about how we've handled it? Do you guys have any insight on, on that? Yeah, I think that one big problem with the handling of the pandemic is just the lack of unity. I think, you know, it's it's understandable that with something so unknown and, you know, the disease that kind of came out of nowhere and then shut down everything in our lives. It's understandable that 
you know, there was a lot of confusion initially and the best, you know, the best practices weren't really known by the general public. But I think, you know, to combat that and create like a unified plan early on from a political standpoint and just from like a local community standpoint, I think both both factors would have been really helpful in getting the public on board to social distancing and everything to decrease the spread. I think for a lot of for a lot of like the early months, it was just really a lot. There were a lot of there was a lot of resistance to wearing masks and just this disconnect between healthcare workers and the rest of the population. And so I think that like trying to share stories from from side of each side of things is really helpful. But at a certain point, like that lack of unity really was probably created from a top down approach. I have no idea what you're talking about. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We're all being so politically like, I know. Maybe like one, yeah, one other thing I might add. Just Go ahead, that, It's kind of hard to do this after the pandemic, but maybe it can be a lesson learned for the future. Is I think this this is the first time that a lot, like a large majority of the public is engaging with science and medicine on like as intimate of a level as like they have in their lifetimes, which I think in the long run will be a net positive. Of course, it comes with like a lot of the, like earlier on in the pandemic, there was like mixed messaging because what we knew about the virus and the like the COVID syndrome was kind of evolving on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's like a normal part of science. And I think people that are like kind of very closely involved in research know that and kind of appreciate that things change with evidence over time. But for the public, it was very jarring to kind of see for the first time, like people like kind of changing decisions and adjusting stuff. And they sort of, some people saw that as a sign of like, oh, that it might not be real or that because it's inconsistent. And, you know, I think that has brought with it a bit of difficulties that, you know, our page and similar other healthcare workers are trying to like solve, but hopefully that's something we can work on for the future is to like make sure that more of the public is aware of like how science evolves and changes so that if something like this happens, like we can be more receptive to the changes. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of word going around of how to handle this, you know, pandemic and what we've done wrong and what steps we should take in the future. What have we learned? Do you guys generally think that lockdowns in general work? And if so, and if not, why not? That's a, a tough question because it is also a very controversial question in a lot of ways, depending who you talk to. So I think, you know, we have general tools for fighting any type of spread of any disease. So, or especially like a respiratory disease, which is in this case, you know, physical distancing, washing your hands, wearing a mask in this case. So physical distancing is a big, is a big role, has a big role in that. And so that's what lockdowns do. And I think, you know, when things are out of control with the spread of a virus, it makes very much sense to have a lockdown. And, you know, but the point of it is to to try to shut down the spread of the virus. And if that lockdown is removed too early or if, if the spread of the virus is not controlled, then kind of the lock the, the point of the lockdown gets defeated. And, you know, nobody wants to go into a lockdown like again and because other people's like livelihoods depend on like their work and our economy is so dependent on on that as well. So I think there's a lot of like pros and cons that you have to weigh in terms of whether to impose a lockdown or not. 
But I think it's just a really hard question. It depends also like on the the trust of like the people who have to go into lockdown, whether they'll adhere to it, whether they'll like want to do it. And it's very different in the US, I think, compared to to other countries where they they're more liberal with I guess putting in putting shutting things down like earlier. So I don't I'm not sure if that answered your question quite well, but I think it's just it's it's a hard question to tackle, especially living in the US. <laughs> Oh, definitely. I think theoretically speaking, you're absolutely right. The idea of a lockdown is, is seems like it, it would combat the virus and prevent it from spreading. I think the difficult part is really seeing if there's the strong scientific evidence to back it. I don't think we have strong evidence yet, but from a common sense perspective, it should definitely work. Yeah, I think because so much of what we are dealing with the pandemic is very new situations of having lockdowns for like such extended periods of time. We don't necessarily have the evidence at this point for it right now, but for a future pandemic, potentially we could learn from whatever policies have been introduced globally in terms of lockdowns. So we may not have the evidence for it now, but potentially in the future we might. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And like you're saying, when you're in the middle of an outbreak like New York City was, I mean, Dan and I went through that in the spring. And at that point, you have no other option, right? You have to do a lockdown, a total lockdown. But yeah, if we had the public's cooperation and we had masking and social distancing and people were only doing outside things and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, maybe you wouldn't have to go into a full lockdown. But once you get to that point where you're already overrun, it's very hard to to wind it back. You have kind of no option but to just like buckle down and, and go through it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's also interesting what what isn't what should be locked down. Like for example, I'm in Baltimore right now and earlier this week they canceled all of the indoor dining and outdoor dining because there are a lot of cases where the outdoor dining is really, you know, like a tent construction that is is for all intents and all intents and purposes indoor. And so canceling mm-hmm. both of those indoor and outdoor dining and just reverting to only takeout, I think was a, a good move for the city to avoid the spread in the coming weeks that are colder. But I think when you talk about like a general lockdown that incorporates restaurants, you know, retail shopping and every other aspect of a business, then it's harder to really get data on each specific component. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you guys think about gyms? Yeah, so I I personally don't really feel comfortable going to a gym, especially with the just increased work of breathing that comes along with exercise. I know it is kind of controversial, you know, people wear masks in gyms, so is that okay? And I think certain gyms really do a good job of keeping people distance during exercise, but it it would be concerning to me if people work too close together. And I think that's also interesting that a lot of gyms focus on their sanitation policies, you know, between use. But if there's like, if they're reaching a certain number of people in the gym at the same time, then the sanitation isn't going to really make a difference in that because we know that most transmission occurs via respiratory droplet spread anyway. And so I think that... Right, and not foam. Exactly. So, I mean, if you say that things are are sanitized, you know, every every six hours, I don't really care if someone is in in my face when I'm working out. Um, so I think people weigh that risk uh, nice. differently. And, you know, luckily, I've been able to get some home workouts in and run outside. So definitely. Yeah. Are you guys affiliated? So there's this other website with John Hopkins, that's the like the death tracking. It's like a data website. Are you guys affiliated no. with that? No, we're, no not. we're not. 
Okay. Who runs that? Is it residents or? That's the, I believe it's from the school of public health. There's a, a team behind that whole site that, that runs and updates it. Okay. So let's talk about testing and then we're going to talk about the vaccine. And then I have like questions, people send in questions for you guys. So testing, at-home tests, saliva tests. What do you think about these tests? So I think that it's definitely one of the like big, I hope it will be one of the big like things that will help overcome outbreaks and kind of the chain of transmission because it's sort of, I guess the like overarching paradigm has always been like test and trace and isolate. And that's how you stop outbreaks, not just like pandemics like COVID, but even more localized outbreaks of things like salmonella and E. coli that the CDC kind of does on like an average day-to-day basis. Like you'll hear about it in the news every once in a while. Like, oh, they traced all of it to like some lettuce that was produced at this factory. And like, and that, that's all done with like test, trace and isolate. So I think the ability to have like greater access to tests by things that you could do like at home, like with a self-test or like rapid tests, even though they might not be like the best clinical gold standard for diagnosis, it can at least help to like sway decision-making. And I also think, I would say like in general, a lot of of people have felt just estranged a little bit by, you know, by like higher institutions when it comes to the pandemic. So I think it'll be more empowering for someone to take their own test and be like, oh, I have a lot more trust in like the result that I like delivered myself as opposed to like, some arbitrary thing that, especially the people that are like less inclined to believe aspects of the pandemic, they might be much more receptive to seeing their own test results that they conducted as opposed to like having it sent through like a lab and then getting it back. So I think that's definitely a huge step forward. And I think also something that is important to note is just like the sensitivity and specificity of testing, which is kind of a abstract concept to a lot of people, I'm sure. But the fact that there could be false negatives and how to kind of, you know, interact with your own test result with that in mind. So, you know, not taking it as the whole truth and doing all these risky behaviors just because you had a, a test result that was negative at a certain point, and then you go and do all these things that could be spreading illness. So I think that, that that's important to keep in mind, like from the testing landscape in general. Yeah. You mentioned false negative. What about false positive? Is that a thing? Yeah. So Rohan did a great post on sensitivity specificity. So he can definitely talk a lot about that. Yeah. So a lot of the tests are sort of designed. So so there's like, there's like two aspects to sensitivity and sensitivity. There's sort of what's referred to as analytical sensitivity and specificity, which is like sort of the lab the test is like designed in the lab so that it doesn't react to maybe like other coronaviruses that like other strains of coronaviruses that aren't the actual SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19. And then there is the sort of clinical sensitivity and specificity, which refers to whether or not the test result matches. And to kind of bridge those two things, you have to sort of define a sort of threshold because otherwise the you know, when you amplify PCR, like DNA, or in this case, RNA, which is being reverse transcribed and then amplified, like you're going to get some sort of signal no matter what, just because of noise and kind of random fragments of genetic material. I've done a lot of failed PCRs as a grad student myself. So like, I know it's a little bit of a messy process. So you have to like pick like, at what level of reading do I consider this to be a positive versus do I consider this to be a negative? And as a result of whatever level you pick, you're going to misclassify some because the two like populations will have overlap. 
And so the, the thresholds are usually defined strategically to minimize false positives as much as possible because the, the false positives can sort of be damaging in the sense that people will have to stay home that might not otherwise do. And it's easier to balance against false positives. Uh, false negatives are also very damaging because then people might think, oh, I don't have COVID, I can like, go out and do whatever I want when they are actually transmitting the disease. But it is a lot harder to balance against a false negative because there's just a lot more kind of easily palpable reasons for why you could get a false negative. Because you, know, you could have virus uh, colonizing your nasopharynx, but the swab just doesn't get enough. Or you know, one of the reagents that's being used when uh, conducting the test isn't working properly or the equipment is outdated. There's a lot of kind of logistical issues that can explain a false negative. But in terms of a false positive, it's because the tests are designed so that they don't react to like other strains of viruses and all, it's really hard to have no virus that somehow gives you a reading. So it's, it's tricky, but I think that's just sort of the way that it has to be designed. I mean, I've seen these patients, definitely. I've seen them. And, and usually the physician, the attending will kind of flag the note as, you know, they're still PUI, even though they had a negative and, and they'll write in the note still high suspicion of COVID pneumonia. Just because, especially if you're in a major city, after you've seen, I mean, how many, Dan, a hundred of these patients, you start to just, you almost don't even need to look at the test anymore because they're so similar. The cases are so similar. Definitely. I had a patient who came to the ED or the other side of the coin. I had a patient who came to the ED, like, you know, had fever, shortness of breath. He had a chest x-ray with ground glass opacities. His ferritin was elevated, LDH, CRP, ESR. And I got, I got the COVID test, but the test was pending. And I told everybody, I'm like, this is a COVID patient. You don't even need to wait for the test to come back. I told them, yeah. like, you don't even need, because you see it so many times, you know, it's a COVID patient. I came back the next morning yeah. and I looked at his chart and it was COVID positive. Sometimes you just know it. Even if it came back negative, I would have treated him as a COVID positive and I would have retested them. So definitely it's, it comes to a yeah. lot of, it comes to clinical judgment too, tying all the information that you get and, you know, you, you see the kind of illness script and, and manage them from there. Go ahead. And I mean, to Rohan's point, though, that's difficult to explain to the public, right? That's difficult to say, like, look, they got a negative because then they're doubting the science of it. They're saying, well, then if that test didn't work, tests don't work, right? right? Yeah, that's true. It's frustrating. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the vaccine. First, let's go through and say if you guys are going to get the vaccine or not. Definitely. Yes. Yes. Everybody says (laughs) yes, yes, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wish us, okay, I wish someone um, said no so we can be like you, mother. <laughs> <laughs> we'll gang up on you. You're <laughs> speaking to the wrong audience here. Okay. No, right, right. Let's talk about did you ever have any kind of like moment where you felt like maybe it's a little rushed or did you have any doubts at all? Yeah, I mean, I think it I think it was pretty, you know, normal to have doubts along the way, given that also just learning through all our research throughout for our page that, you know, vaccines usually take a lot longer to get developed. And this is kind of an unprecedented time in terms of vaccine development and also an unprecedented type of vaccine of the mRNA vaccine. But I think, you know, I, I trust like the the regulatory agencies that have gone through and looked at the data and to make sure that it's going to be safe and effective. And I know that it's going to be, you know, a lot of institutions are also going to be doing their own review of the vaccine itself, like our institution. So if they trust it, then I feel like I have a lot better reason to to want to get it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Dan, I don't know if you know this, but actually Pfizer did their stage three clinical trial at our hospital. I know. I heard. I heard. I didn't get to. Oh, <laughs> I, I thought I was telling you something new. <laughs> no, no, of course. No. In my <laughs> clinic, in my clinic, we always talk about that. I just want to ask a side question. What do you guys want to do career-wise? Because you guys are in your fourth year now. Yeah. So Ali and I are between, we're between our third and fourth year. So we're actually on a year off. So I am planning to go into pediatrics at this point and I'm interested in public health and medicine and health disparities and as well, and particularly related to children. So this pandemic has been an interesting time for like health disparities and also its impact on children. Like we were talking about lockdowns, like children definitely get affected in terms of schooling and everything. So yeah, it's been interesting from somebody's perspective that wants to go into pediatrics. That's interesting. What about you, Alexandra? You're also a Uh No, I'm I'm doing, so I'm doing my research here right now in an ENT lab, translational focused on biomedical engineering and actually designing a drug eluting stent for airway diseases. And so I'm interested in going into ENT head and neck surgery in the future. Hopefully combining that, like the innovative and engineering side of things in my future practice. So I'm excited. Well, that's really cool. exciting. What about you, Rohan? Let me guess. <laughs> I'm going to try to... seem like you, you're into the biostatistics stuff, researching. Are you trying to go into research? MPH. He, he's getting PhD, MPH, PhD. right? Oh, PhD. I'd be impressed if you read my mind because there's nothing in there. I have no idea what I want to do. Um, <laughs> I'm a second year, so I still have... I think if, if all goes well, I'll, I'll finish my PhD and MD in like six years from now. So there's still a while. Okay. I, I don't know yet. I, in undergrad, I did a lot of research on like metabolism, sort of like fat metabolism and like fatty acids and uh, carbohydrate metabolism, which isn't like directly COVID, but I, I think it's, uh, it's still interesting to see like people that have a lot of these like cardiovascular comorbidities have worse outcomes in COVID, which... I think makes sense, but it's it's still interesting because there's a lot we don't know in terms of why that is the case and how those kind of conditions may predispose you to other risks. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to the vaccine for just one second. So the allergy, the reactions that they're seeing in Britain, expected, not expected, what do you guys think? Yeah. So we actually just posted about this and it was inspired by my mom asking me if, you know, she should get the vaccine because she had like some potential allergic skin reaction and was like, does this mean I can't get it? And so we looked into it. And so it's interesting because on the Pfizer package insert, they say that those with severe allergic reactions, so anaphylaxis, shouldn't get the vaccine. And people with a history of anaphylaxis actually weren't included in the clinical trial. So this makes sense that to be on the package insert. And then obviously, you know, the risk of allergic reactions, we know based on the initial clinical trials that it's low. So Pfizer released their data and the FDA found that 0.6% of people had any allergic reaction, not just not only severe allergic reactions. So that's less than 1% of people had any allergic reaction to the vaccine. And then 0.5% had a reaction to the placebo group. So that means that they're pretty similar in terms of allergic reactions to the placebo versus the actual vaccine. And the two British healthcare workers, it's not really known if that was caused by an ingredient in the vaccine yet, but they're currently investigating those cases. And so right now, the CDC recommends that anyone who has had an allergic reaction in the past, a severe allergic reaction, so anaphylaxis, to a vaccine or any injectable therapy is contraindicated to receive the vaccine. 
but that doesn't include like, you know, small allergic reactions to other foods or bee stings, et cetera, really just anaphylaxis to vaccines and other injections, which I think is important to really distinguish between those things because, you know, that's a lot different from seasonal allergies or a skin reaction, hives to something. And so really like honing in on what would be dangerous to the public is really important because I think if a lot of the public didn't realize the differences between those things, then like my mom, she would think, you know, I can't get this vaccine. So, Mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, more data will be present in the future to continue to elucidate some of these nuances. Absolutely. Yeah. Real quick. So I know you guys are working. I don't know how to bridge this. (laughs) I'm going to do my best. Do you have any nursing involvement? Do you guys work with nurses? You know, this is a doctor nurse podcast. Talk talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. So, well, within medical school, when we're on our rotations, I think that's probably the time that we work with nurses the most. And, you know, to be a preview of what's to come also in our, our future career. That's probably the, the time I think I've worked with nurses the most. But we also have like interprofessional events throughout medical school where we you know, learn from nurses. And actually, I I feel like the, the nursing students were always the like most enthusiastic and I learned like the most from them out of all the professions that were sitting at the table. They're very so, enthusiastic. <laughs> it was always so great. And so I'm currently also in the, and doing an MPH. So uh, in my program itself, there are a lot of um, people with nursing backgrounds that I've gotten to learn from and you're trying to, um, you know, combine a public health perspective with their um, nursing career as well. Awesome. Anybody else? Yeah, I guess for me, I'm I'm still in preclinical. So what we have is we have what's called like an interprofessional education. Mm-hmm. So we have sessions where we take like a, a handful of medical students and a handful of nursing students, as well as a handful of public health students. And they kind of present us with cases that kind of require the, I mean, like in a sense, the expertise of all the professions, but we're all like first and second year students. Mm-hmm. So we don't have, none of us have expertise in our professions, but we sort of like, try and project like what what it would be like, how to work with everyone. Because I think it's a really cool environment because we're all relatively undifferentiated. And although we have like, you know, different career aspirations, like in terms of what type of healthcare provider we want to be, we all come from the same place of like wanting to take care of other people when they're vulnerable. And so I think it's really cool to kind of like share that time with with my peers and kind of learn from them and see how they would approach a problem differently and how their curriculum has maybe primed them to think about it in a different way that I like would never even have thought of. But I think that's a a valuable learning experience for me. Hmm. Yeah. And kind of going off of that in, in my first year, I participated in like an offshoot of this interprofessional series. And I was paired with basically each, there was a group of three and one nursing student, one medical student and one pharmacy student. And we did home visits to a patient And we weren't giving medical advice, but kind of, you know, understanding what barriers the patient was facing at home and in connecting with the healthcare system. And I think that that experience was really valuable because one, like, allowed me to learn longitudinally from these people. And like Rohan was saying, we're all really early in our education, but I felt like I was, you know, the earliest first year of, of four years of medical school, whereas, you know, the pharmacy student was almost about to graduate and the nursing student was, you know, almost about to graduate as well. And so kind of learning from my peers in that scenario was awesome. And the fact that we could, you know, make an impact in this patient's life through that. 
Wow, Dan, they're starting them off kind of early. Nursing students and, and medical <laughs> students. This is better than what we have. And we're, we're working in the hospital. It did. No, in my medical school, we had that too. Really? Yeah, we had interdisciplinary, wow. you know, teaching with pharmacy, nursing, and PT also actually physical therapy students wow. were with us too. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have anything like that. And we still feel a little separated sometimes at the, you know, doctor and nurse level on the floor. It feels a little separate sometimes. Right? Or you feel fine about it. <laughs> I um I don't disagree with that. But I think it's good. It's healthy separation is good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So I asked on Instagram, I asked some people to field some questions to you guys. So I'll just there's only a handful. So we'll just kind of go around whoever feels like they want to answer. The first one actually says no questions, just thank them for being awesome. So thank you guys so much for your work. Because I know it's like volunteer, right? You guys aren't getting paid for this. And it's a lot of work. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Yeah. So nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, guys, keep up this, keep up the energy, keep up the interest. You guys have done so much work and, and you have so much more to accomplish. It's, it goes to testament to show how much you guys can accomplish. And I really think you guys can do great things. Thank you. That's, thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been exciting. I mean, it's nice to be able to contribute in this way. And like when we started, we didn't really know anything about social media. And I mean, we had some basics in graphic design, but I think like being able to synthesize information was something that we hadn't done like in a public mm -hmm. sphere. So it's been really cool to be a part of this community. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I, so I'm not actually one of the like founders. I joined a little bit later. Sure. Like I was like, Oh, it was my spring break. So I was like, Oh, I can do something over spring break. And like, didn't really anticipate that I would like still be here and like didn't anticipate that like it would take off to the level it did like we just hit 20,000 followers which is kind of exciting mm -hmm. and I think when I joined there were like hundreds that's it so it was kind of definitely cool to see how like connected things can get and like if you do good work like people will pick it up and care which I think has been rewarded Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Some of these you might not have the answer to. Some of them are very specific. So if you don't know, it's okay. Just say pass. So somebody is asking about the thoughts on ketamine instead of versed and fentanyl, proning or not, and paralysis or not. If anybody has any thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I'd say pass. <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely yeah. proning. I think definitely proning. For sure, yeah. proning. Yeah. yeah. What about Dan? What do you think? Ketamine? Instead of Versed and fentanyl, we we don't even always use Versed, but sometimes in we what use circumstance are we talking about? A COVID patients? We're talking, I guess. What, what I'm assuming this per they only have a little box to write in. So what I'm thinking the person is saying is like in an ICU setting, like an ICU COVID patient. What do you think? Does it matter Versed and fentanyl or ketamine? I mean, I I've never seen ketamine. I don't. Uh... You have more experience than me with, with ketamine. I don't have that much experience with ketamine, but I hear good things about it. I think they like they love to use it in the ED and some, yeah. some critical care units. Yeah. We don't really use what, it that much either. It's the think? ED. It's the ED mainly. I used to, when I worked in the ED, they would throw ketamine at every everything. Someone yeah. comes in with foot pain, they're like, oh, give them a dose of ketamine. I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're pro-proning paralysis. I mean we do paralyze them. Yeah. yeah. That's it. I don't know how to answer that question. Okay. What do you guys think? Obviously there's not enough data, but 
your best guess. What do you think? Are we going to need the COVID vaccine every year like the flu? Or is it going to be more of like a one-time thing or every five-year thing? An interesting question. I think we'll probably have to look more into what exactly is known about how immunity lasts for not even just COVID itself, just for this vaccine as well. I think we just don't know right now. And I think the earliest we'll probably find out is once, you know, like six months after the initial trial participants, like in the Pfizer trial, they get tested for like antibodies or something. And so I think we won't know, but I I feel like it could be possible that we might need like a yearly COVID vaccine, like the flu, especially if there's different strains every every year. I don't know if anybody else has thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's, uh, at least from what I've read in terms of like the molecular level of it, we we know that like the spike protein seems to be essential for like the infectivity of coronaviruses and this one. So hopefully like, we, I mean, there's already several strains circulating of the like coronavirus, like this SARS-CoV-2. There's like different strains of COVID, but at least to my knowledge, like none of them are that different in the spike protein. So hopefully, the mRNA antigen that we generate for it will be like conserved enough to help. Unlike the flu, which has like different, completely different versions of like the, the neuraminidase and the like hemagglutinin proteins, which makes it really hard to have like conserved flu vaccine. Mm. So I guess I'm optimistic, but it'll have to come down to like more data post-vaccination and then just more in-depth molecular studies of the virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's assuming if this virus is here to stay, you know, I think influenza is definitely a seasonal pattern of infectivity that kind of has just been around it. But COVID is something new that that we don't usually get infected with in a seasonal pattern. Now that it's entered into our you know, kind of like environmental flora, it could be something that we we have to continuously, you know, get vaccines for. And like you said, we don't have the neuraminidase and the hemagglutinin, and we don't understand the mutation patterns the same way as we do with influenza. And and there's some insight about that it, that inf- that the mutation patterns are actually slower, right, than the influenza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I think you're right. We have to see what's to come and. See if this virus continues to, you know, have its impact on us even after the vaccine era. Definitely. So somebody else is asking, and again, things that we might not have the data for. Somebody is asking, is there any way to know how long it will take for the vaccine after getting the vaccine to have resistance, to have immunity? Uh, I don't exactly remember if this has been like released yet, but I think the dosing regimens of at least so like Pfizer is two doses three weeks apart and then the other ones are two doses two weeks apart I believe Mm -hmm. so I think that has to do something with when they expect immunity to come from and I think at least two weeks after for the ones that did two doses two weeks apart they looked to see if people had symptoms of COVID two weeks after the last dose of it so I that just tells me that they're assuming that immunity would come sometime within those two weeks. And then for the Pfizer vaccine, it was one week after the second dose so that they were defining symptoms or defining, defining cases of COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is pretty quick, really. That's good. Okay. What about kids? Are the, I mean, what's going on with the kids? <laughs> <laughs> Neha, Neha has a, the answers for that. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
That's a, <laughs> a uh, broad question in yeah. terms of COVID. But I, I mean, as the general consensus is that it's not as a severe of a... Uh, are you talking specifically about the vaccines or about COVID? I guess about the transmission, you know, there's a lot of talk about that kids, obviously they don't, they might be asymptomatic, but they're still carriers and they're infecting their parents. And, but actually a lot of the schools, the, especially for the smaller children, they've done okay. Like the teachers haven't gotten infected. And so where's the line, I guess, of, is it adolescent or, you know, yeah, you just I want to expand on any of it. I think there's a lot of, you know, mixed evidence and opinions about how much kids are like a vector for transmission. And I don't think there really is any consensus on a specific age cutoff at this point. I think there's probably still a lot more research that needs to be done to determine that. But it is a really big issue because if they are not so much of a vector of transmission as we think they might be, then, you know, closing down schools versus like closing down bars is like a different kind of mm-hmm. policy decision in terms of, you know, what you're, what steps you're trying to do to, to lower the spread of the virus. But I think, you know, the, for the places that have high rates of transmission in their com- community, the shutting down schools is probably just like out of abundance of precaution because we just don't know, you know, how much could be spread through these schools. And then to teachers and staff and parents that are probably more at risk for, for severe disease. Absolutely. Good answer. How do we find you guys? Give me all of your handles. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of COVID up to date, I can give you our Instagram is at COVID, C-O-V-I-D, up, U-P, and then the number two, date, D-A-T-E. And so that's where we post most of our things. We also have a Twitter and Facebook, but I would say if you're on Instagram, then gravitate towards our Instagram and then we're also involved in kind of an offshoot of that, uh, The Health Beat, which is a podcast that's focused on health in the news, kind of broken down by medical students. And we talk about COVID and then other other health topics in the news. It's not all about COVID because I know everyone is a little mm-hmm. bit fatigued at this point, even though we should maintain all of our, our best practices. We talk about some other things as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thanks for coming on the show, on the podcast. You guys had great insight. It was we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks yeah, so much for thanks having for us. Having yeah. us. Yeah. I mean, you're you're the essential healthcare workers that are doing all of the good work. So it's impressive to us that you know you have you have the time and energy to you know put into this podcast as well. It's really it's really thank great you so much for saying that. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much. All right, thanks, guys. Thank Take care. Thanks. You too. Guys, yeah. Happy, Happy holidays. holidays. Happy Stay holidays. Safe. All right, bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. If you have any questions or comments, any topics you'd like to submit, please send them to rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send them to our Instagram account, which is rnmdpodcast, or my personal Instagram account is the nocturnal nurse. Um, if you like the show, please like, please subscribe. We need the love right now. We're just getting started also if you have any suggestions um, of how we can make this better this is for you guys and uh, we'll see you again next week bye bye